When you heard the scripture reading this morning, you might have got a sense that we are starting to wind things up a little bit in our Ablazing Grace series. For those of you who are here maybe for the first time today, for the last, I think it's been more than 12 months now, we've been preaching through the Old Testament, what we're calling Ablazing Grace, and we've been through the beginning, the family, the exodus, the land, the kings, and we're in the midst of the exile, and today we're going to come out of the exile. So we're going to be unpacking the story of um, God's people coming out of what was Babylon, will now be Persia, into back to Jerusalem. And to set the stage, if this will work, I want to cast our minds back to a story that we looked at around about two weeks ago, I think it was two or three weeks ago, to the book of Esther. And this is one of my favorite verses in Esther, and I think it's one of the, the standout verses in the book, and it says this. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that the king's palace, in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And as I read this verse, it makes me ask the question, I wonder if God has placed each of us in each of the situations that we find ourselves for such a time as this. And so that's the title of our message this morning. And I want to tell this story through three different characters, Cyrus, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And to begin with, and I think if we understand these three characters and their stories, then I think that um, we'll pretty well get a good, good um, grasp on the story of the return from exile. So let's open up our Bibles to the book of Ezra. Um, where the story kicks off. So Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, it's, what we, it's the same passage we looked at earlier today, and it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up in the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in, uh, in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, I don't know if anything jumps out to you in this verse, but for me, there's a whole bunch of stuff that just jumps out as being extremely significant. And I'm going to place a few of these standout observations on the screen for you this morning. Number one, Cyrus says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the, of, of the earth. Do you know who Cyrus was? Cyrus the Great. He was the guy that led the armies in, into, um, into Babylon the night that King Darius took over, over Babylon. So he was like a very powerful person. In a couple of years' time, he would take the throne, and he would be the king of Persia, this humongous kingdom, which in his reign would go on to be the largest kingdom that had ever been known up to that point in time. So this is a seriously powerful king. 
But here in this passage, we see King Cyrus saying that the Lord, and notice it's in capitals there. That's not just any Lord, but that's Yahweh. This is the God of the Jews. This is the, the God of heaven. Yahweh has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Pretty strange for this pagan king to be giving such a credit to, um, to the God of heaven. And in comparison... Let's cast our minds back to King Nebuchadnezzar. You might remember, if you're familiar with the story of Nebuchadnezzar, this was a person in a similar position to Cyrus, who one day stood up and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Can you see the pride just like um, flowing out of him? Cyrus in comparison to this, is giving all the credit of his reign to the God of the Jews. Standout observation number two. It says, He has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem. What was the line of communication between God to King Cyrus here? How did Cyrus come to think that the God of the Jews had a specific purpose for him to accomplish? And more than that, if we go to chapter 6 in Ezra, which I've got on the screen for you, where the um, decree is retold, it says, In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. So this isn't just giving the Israelites permission to go back to Jerusalem and build their little temple. This is saying, Cyrus is saying, not only can you go back and build the, the temple but I'm going to pay for it. So three standout observations, the third one being pay for it with the royal treasury. How did this happen? How did God reach the heart of Cyrus? Now you might remember in, when Pastor Davis took us through the sermon on the book of Daniel, we found out that God had a heart for the kings. And in fact, we learned that the book of Daniel almost reads like an evangelistic manual for being a missionary to foreign kings. And in, this, and in the story, we see Daniel and his interactions with, um, with Nebuchadnezzar come to the point where it seems that Nebuchadnezzar had a genuine conversion to the God of, of Daniel. But it wasn't just Nebuchadnezzar who discovered Yahweh, the God of the Jews, um, in, in the palace, but also Darius and also Cyrus as well. Let me show you how. Daniel chapter 5 verse 30 says, That very night Belshazzar, the, the Chaldean king, was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. This is talking about where um, the Persians came in and defeated Babylon uh, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So here we see Daniel, this, this man of God, who was educated and learned in the scriptures, not just rubbing shoulders with King Nebuchadnezzar, but here we see, at least in this part of the story, the king's plan is to elevate Daniel to being in charge of everyone else in the kingdom, in this humongous, gigantic kingdom that, that was being commanded here. And as a result of this, 
you may be familiar with a, a well-known story of Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel gets thrown into that. There's this conspiracy. They want to um, trick, trick Daniel to get his, him killed and knocked out of this high position. He goes into the, into the lion's den. God works this miracle. And who was it that came to the den the next morning? King Darius. It says, then King Darius wrote... Oh, King Darius came there. He saw that Daniel was, was not killed, that the angel of the Lord had come and, and, and shut the lion's mouth. And in response to this, just like Nebuchadnezzar, it says, Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in, in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. goes on to say, his kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during which kings? The reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. So here we have a follower of God, a Jew, Daniel, rubbing shoulders with King Darius and also King Cyrus, who went on to lead to be the king of the greatest empire that had been known up into that point. Now, there's something else we need to know about Daniel. Daniel was an educated man. He was educated in the schools of Babylon. But more than this, he was educated and he was knowledgeable in the scriptures. And there was one aspect of the scriptures that really got Daniel's attention and his focus. And that was the prophecies regarding the return of God's people from Babylon, from exile, back to Jerusalem. And to give you an example, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, it says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord of Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So here we have Daniel researching the scriptures, reading through Jeremiah and seeing... In 70 years, God's people are going to leave captivity. And he's been, I don't know if he had a tally on his war of the years going through, but he counts up the years and he can see that, that we're about to go back home. We're about to be set free. But this isn't the only prophecy that, that Daniel would have been well aware of. If we go to the book of Isaiah, we see one of a, a prophecy which was, had a lot of new points in, to it, in it for me this week um, about a king that was to sit on the throne. It says, in Isaiah 44, verse 24, Thus says the Lord, who says of Jerusalem, She shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. So here, Isaiah is foretelling that God is going to bring those exiled um, in this foreign land back to Jerusalem, and he will allow them to rebuild those ruins. But it goes on. It goes to say, Who says of Cyrus... He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now, Isaiah lived well before Cyrus was even born. In fact, this prophecy was probably written somewhere between around about one and a half centuries before Cyrus came on into into take over, over Babylon. Now, I, when I'm reading this, I just get this picture in my mind of, remember, Daniel, he knows all these scriptures. He's rubbing shoulders with King Cyrus. He's a very important counselor in the land. 
You can just imagine Daniel one, one day having a conversation with Cyrus. Hey, Cyrus, did you know that one of our prophets wrote about you 150 years ago? And you just imagine Daniel giving King Cyrus a Bible study about himself. And the, the verses get even more specific. It goes on to say, Thus says the Lord to his anointers. Now, I just want you to picture Cyrus reading this for the first time. Imagine if your name was in here. Um, Thus says the Lord to his anointed Judith or Cece or Branca. Imagine if your name you found in Scripture. So he's there reading, whose right hand I I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings. How did Cyrus know that God had given him the kingdoms? It said it in the, in the scroll of Isaiah. goes on to say, To open doors before him that gates may not be closed. Closed. I will go before you and, and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. Here we have specific details about how this um, defeat of Babylon was going to take place. And historians recount that um, when the Euphrates, there, there was gates along the sides of the, Euph- of the Euph- Euphrates, and because of the the big festivals that were taking place in Babylon, these were just left open so people can freely come in and out. And so Cyrus gets there and the gates are just open. And as a result of these providences by God, he managed to just march on in. So he's reading through here and he's seeing, wow, the very way that I conquered this city was told about by the God of Daniel. And then it goes on to say, For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen... I call you by name. I name you though you do not know me. He understood that. His name was literally there in the scroll of Isaiah. I called you by name, but you do not know me. And it goes on to say, talking about Cyrus, I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. And so here we see Cyrus, this foreign king, this king that was should have been the enemy of God's people, the one in which they were exiled in his kingdom. This pagan king who had so many different gods that he had had within the realms of his kingdom come and say, Yahweh, the God of Daniel, the God of the Israelites, he has given me my kingdom, and he has charged me, he has given me a purpose to go and rebuild his house, and I'm going to pay for it from the treasury of the kingdom. And we see in this situation, when we, you would think in the minds of, of the Israelites, there in exile, spread across the nation in this, this foreign land, they must be thinking, how is God ever going to bring about this great deliverance? And if you think about when they got led out of Egypt, what took place? There was plagues, there was... Um, all sorts of dramatic events in order to um, basically force Pharaoh to let these people go. But what a contrast. Here we see King Cyrus freely letting them go and empowering them to do the task. And when we think about God's plan in this situation, God's plan for his people required great finances. They wouldn't have had the resources to do this task. And also it required great freedoms for the people of Israel. And Cyrus there realizes that God's providence placed King Cyrus in his specific situation for such a time 
as this. And so the story moves on. There's about 50,000 of, the, of these people from around the kingdom. They get this message, which is sent out by messengers all over the place, and they gather together to go back to Jerusalem. And you would imagine there would be a, a, an incredible amount of just enthusiasm and joy um, accompanying this, um, this group of people going back to rebuild God's house. And so they get back, and um, they rebuild the altar to begin with, and sacrifices are again um, taking, are taking place. And they start working the foundation. And the foundation is built. And we see all these things coming together. But whenever God's plan is going strong, we can expect Satan to throw a few curveballs in there as well. And that's what begins to happen. And we see one of the first things that takes place when the foundation is laid, they have this big celebration that God is rebuilding this. But there's a number of people amongst them whose minds go back to the Temple of Solomon. And the Temple of Solomon was an incredible building that um, would have taken people, people just would have been in awe every single time they saw it. And their minds went back to there, and they saw these little um, comparatively um, pretty poor little foundation stones that they had built, and a whole bunch of them, they start weeping and wailing that the temple that they're building now is just nothing in comparison to the temple that was there before. And so we see this discouragement that starts to take place. And to add to this discouragement, we see some of the surrounding nations, some of the officers around them, they start to get a bit threatened by this, this new city that's, that's starting to um, fire back up. And we see that um, they start sending people down there to discourage them. They start um, hiring officials in, in the important people in the land to go to the king and go and give them all these bad reports about the Israelites. And the people become, begin, begin to get discouraged. And eventually, it gets to the point where the work completely stops. But God moves upon the heart of another king, Darius, who takes upon the throne, and he sends out a decree that basically says, you need to follow the first decree of Cyrus, build this house, if anyone opposes you, it gets pretty graphic. It says, um, we will remove a, a beam from his house, impale him through that, and his house will be turned into a dunghill. Okay, a fairly sort of, um, you wouldn't want to mess with, with the Israelites if that was going to happen. And so the enthusiasm gets back up. The temple is built, but there's still an element of discouragement, and God needs another man to come in on the scene. And so we find... We need our second character. We've had Cyrus. Now let's go to um, Ezra. Now, who was Ezra? Ezra was a, a priest. He was a descendant from Aaron, who was the high priest right back at the beginning of, of the temple. And Aaron, I mean, Ezra was a man who was passionate about the Word of God. And let, let me give you a few examples of that. In Ezra chapter 7 and verse 6, it says, This Ezra went up from Babylonia... He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the that uh, skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord the God of Israel had given and the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord was God was on him So this guy to me sounds a little bit like Joseph okay he was someone who was, was at least at this point he was educated he was he knew about the the scriptures um, and whatever he did 
the hand of the Lord was upon him. Everything prospered, and he had the complete confidence of the king. And because of this, the king was about to give him an important mission. But to give you another example of his passion for Scripture, Ezra says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So he was a man who, three things. He had devoted his heart to study the Scriptures, number one. Number two, he devoted his heart to apply those to his life. And number three, he devoted his, himself to teach those Scriptures around, around the, to, to the Israelites. And we're going to see that this is exactly the man that God needed for the job. Let's have a look at this decree that was given by King Artaxerxes to, to um, Ezra. Now, so turn your Bibles to Ezra chapter 7 and verse 11. Ezra chapter 7, starting in verse 11. Now, for those people who are familiar with Bible prophecy, you might um, be familiar with the prophecies in Daniel chapter 9 and this decree to go and rebuild Jerusalem. This is the decree that we, that we use for the basis of that. And this was from Artaxerxes to this trusted official in the kingdom, Ezra, who was passionate about the word of God. It goes on to say, uh, verse 11, This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and of statutes for for Israel. Here we go. Artaxerxes, king of kings to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Peace, and now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or the priest of Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. I'll summarize the rest of the, the, the decree. Basically, Artaxerxes comes to Ezra and says, I want you to go with another group of people, go back to Jerusalem, go in and see how they're going with the house of God, and take a whole bunch of gold, a whole bunch of silver, and, and make sure that the, the, the house of God, the temple, is, has everything that it needs. And then beyond that, whatever you want to do with the rest of the money, go ahead and do it. And so Ezra has this, this task to, to lead this next wave of people going back from exile. But the way in which... You sort of have to dig into the details here a little bit, but it's really an incredible journey that Ezra had to go on to get all this back. And I'll explain why. Turn across to, to chapter 8 and verse 21. Chapter 8 and verse 21. It says... So this is... Just imagine here, Ezra a whole bunch of people camped down by a river ready to go on a journey back to Jerusalem to investigate. It says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So he fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. So this is a long journey. Now, I'm going to explain a few of the details of how far this journey was in a moment. But here we have Ezra is about to lead this group, and there was a lot of dangers that lay before them. But Ezra had told the king that... um, Ezra told the king that the God of heaven is able to look after him and bless those who 
do his, his work. And so he didn't want to then not back up what he had said about God. He wanted to actually practice things that he was, he was teaching and that he was preaching. And let me show you why this was such a significant journey. From Babylon to Jerusalem was, anyone want to have a guess about how far it was? How many kilometers? Jerusalem, or Babylon to Jerusalem was around about 1,500 kilometers. And if you look at when he, they left to when they arrived, it was a little bit over 100 days journey to make it all the way back to Jerusalem. So that's sort of why they didn't just go back and forth all the time. Maybe from here, probably getting down towards Melbourne somewhere. That's a long way to, to walk. Now, the king promised a whole bunch of, gave them a whole bunch of gold and silver for this, for this journey. The gold, it says, the king gave them 200 plus talents of gold, which works out to be about three and a half tons of gold. Now, that sounds a pretty heavy thing and also a pretty valuable thing to be taking with you. Silver, 650 talents, which works out to be around about 22 tons. And I did a few sort of calculations to work out what that gold would be worth today. I don't know if this is what it would be worth back then, but the gold today would be worth around about $175 million. Okay, so this isn't like a little like a, a little bag of money that they're taking back. And I don't know if you've ever been walking down the street with like a big wad of cash in your pocket, and you start to feel a little bit unsafe, a little bit vulnerable that maybe someone along the way might sort of mug you or something and take that money. Imagine if you are with a little group of people traveling 1,500 kilometers through all sorts of foreign lands, all sorts of um, raids potentially could be in your way, with... $175 million worth of gold plus way more silver. This was a pretty serious thing. And here we see Ezra. Ezra is there. He told the king, the God of heaven is is able to look after us. And, And the king would have given him a whole bunch of soldiers. But Ezra meant what he said. He was someone that practiced what he preached. And it makes me think, imagine if we actually believed God's promises enough to live them out. Ezra was a man that was focused on the Word of God, and he was devoted to living that out and teaching that amongst the people. Now, to give you another little illustration about another example of how Ezra was so passionate about the Word of God, I want you to look at a bit of the revival that he he was um, at the forefront of Later on, and this is in the book of Nehemiah, this is talking about Ezra. It says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that he had commanded to Israel. So here we see kind of what's going on right here today taking place in Israel. But there would have been way more people. And Ezra is given the book of the, of the law of God, so he's given the scriptures to read to the people. And it says, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until when? Midday. Okay, I don't know if that was just continuous reading or little pockets, but here we see they're having basically a sermon from maybe 6 a.m. or something through about lunchtime. That's probably about five or six hours. This was a serious um, sermon, and it makes me realize that we've never really had a long sermon here at Kingscliff Church in comparison to this marathon sermon that was taking place here. It goes on to say, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, 
for he was above all the people. This, is, this looks like a regular old sermon here. And as he opened it, the people stood. Now, I don't know if they stood for the whole five or six, or six hours, but here we see a pretty committed group of people that are focusing on the Word of God. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense to the people understood the ring. This is a sermon. They gathered together, and Ezra is preaching to them for hours and hours and hours. It goes on to say, that was the first day. On the second day, the heads of the father's house of the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. That wasn't enough. They came back the next day. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days. Do you think your mind would be full by the end of this? But here we see Ezra is leading this revival in the scriptures. And that wasn't even it. On the 24th day of the month, I don't know how many days it was there, I'm probably just several days later, it says, Now on the 24th day of the month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with earth on their head. So this is people are repenting before God, confessing before God. And it goes on to say, And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law, of the law of their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped their God. Confession isn't something that we do a lot of in our worship services. But imagine if we came together and confessed our sins for a quarter of the day. They must have had a lot of sins to confess. But here we see this great spiritual revival that is being led by Ezra the priest. God's plan for his people of going home, of rebuilding the temple, temple and eventually rebuilding the city. God's plan for his people required a revival in the study and application of God's word. And Ezra, God's providence placed Ezra in his specific situation, educated in an in, in influence with the king for such a time as this. Final character in our study this morning is Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah was a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And if you don't know what a cupbearer is, basically a cupbearer is the guy that when the drink gets brought to the king, he probably picks it out in the first place and then he drinks a little bit of it to, make, to show the king that it's not poisoned. So it's probably not the safest of professions, but if he survives it, then it's good for the king. But the advantage of this is if you're a cupbearer, you actually rub shoulders with the king more than a lot of other people. And Ezra, um, he, he's there and he's, and, he's, and he's usually this happy, cheerful person. And he gets this report from some of the people from down in Jerusalem, basically saying that as a result of the discouragement that's taken over, that, um, that the, the walls of the city are still in ruins, they're not rebuilt, they're, they're being burnt down, the people are, are in danger... And this absolutely traumatizes um, Nehemiah. And, and, he, and he spends days in, in mourning and, and fasting. And he's trying there to, to, um, to, to give the, the king here the, the cup and the drinks that he, he's supposed to do in his usual cheerful self. But the king notices that there's a, an element of, of sadness in, in his heart. And he asks him, Nehemiah, what's this sadness that has taken over you? And so Nehemiah begins to to share with, uh, with the king the things that are going back home. And the king eventually, um, and he hears this story and he says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you to help your people back 
in, in, in Judah. And again, we see that just the hand of providence leading God's people. And this is what Nehemiah says. It says, Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king and to your servant... And, and your servant has found favor in your, in your sight, it's supposed to say, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may, that I may re- rebuild it. So he says, if I've found, found favor in, in your eyes, I want you to send me back to, um, to, back to Jerusalem in order to rebuild the city. Now, the thing that I love about this verse is the prayer that you find right in the middle of it. How much time did... Nehemiah have to say this prayer? Do you think he got down on his knees and said, when the king said, I've got, what do you want me to do for you? And said, okay, hang on. Gets down on his knees, has a big long prayer session, gets back up and says, all right, this is what I think needs to take place. Do you think that's what happened? Now, this is a prayer that just, this is a, a short prayer. This is one that happened in his, in his mind and to, to, for God to help him to know what is the thing to say to, to the king. And it reveals and it shows us that it doesn't matter where we are, we can ask God for his help. And I love what Ellen White, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, says in her, well-known, her very famous book, Steps of Christ, page 99. She says, There is no place, no time or place in which it is inappropriate to offer up petitions to God. In the crowds of the street... In the midst of a business engagement, we may send up a petition to God and plead for the divine guidance, as did Nehemiah when he made his request before King Artaxerxes. And here, I love this last bit. A closet of communion may be found wherever we are. Don't you love how it says that? When Jesus says, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and what, you, when you, what God hears in secret, God will reward. We can have that experience wherever we are whether we are on the bus, whether we are at work, whatever it is, we can have that closet of communion with God. And so Nehemiah grants him this, this request, and Nehemiah goes back to, to um, Jerusalem. And he gets there, and he goes and he talks with some of, the, um, some of the officials there, and he gives these letters that Artaxerxes had given him, and they're not real happy about him being there. There's like this continual opposition that, that takes place against the people of, of Israel. And so he starts having to work in secret and he goes out in the middle of the night and he examines the wall and in the morning, or sometime shortly after that, he gathers the people together and he begins to inspire them out of their discouragement. And to give you some of, an example of some of the discouraging things that were being said to them, Nehemiah 4 verse 3 says, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up in it, he will break down the stone wall. You can see he's having a bit of a, making a bit of fun of um, the people there. This wall is never going to last. Um, but it says, So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. What changed them from being this discouraged people to being this people that had a mind to work? Let's look in... Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17. 
Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17 to 20, and it says, sorry, Ezra, (laughs) Nehemiah chapter 2, 17 to 20. This is the speech that Nehemiah gave to those discouraged group of, of builders. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken with me. So they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat and and Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion of right or claim in Jerusalem. Can you see how he had this sort of charisma? Here we have this discouraged people, and we have Nehemiah walks in there, and he begins to get them fired up. He begins to speak God's belief into them. He begins to speak faith into them. And the people rise up, and as it's said up there, the people had a mind to work. Nehemiah had inspired them. And again, they, they start to be um, faced with all sorts of opposition. Um, and, and then Nehemiah said to them, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. And here we see these inspiring speeches that have been given by Nehemiah to the people of Israel, these, these discouraged people, and the people start to, um, to work together. And, and they start to divide them in different groups. There's a group that's always ready on, on, with their swords and, and spears ready in case the enemy comes. There's other people that are walking around with one hand on their loads, another hand on their sword, just ready. There's these great dangers that are taking place, but the people come together, they're united they're, um, they're standing there ready to fight, ready to build, ready to face whatever, whatever can take place. And eventually, the work of God, the work of rebuilding the wall is finished. And the enemies, it says that the enemies look at that work, which they never thought would be completed, and they say, God has done this. Now, from this story, going back from exile... There's a number of lessons that we can take home with us um, today. The first one is God is able to richly provide for the work that He sets before us. Do you believe that? Here we see this seemingly impossible task. But we see kings giving hundreds of millions of dollars worth of gold and silver and freedoms, and all sorts of things, and empowering them to do the task. They never could have achieved these things without the providence of God. And so the things that God calls us to, He is able to richly provide for those things. Lesson number two. Don't just say what you believe. Live what you believe. It's one thing to go around and be devoted to the Scriptures and to preaching the Scriptures, but it's another thing when your life is in danger or when trouble comes to those promises that just so easily roll off our tongue, such as, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's another thing 
to actually live those out. And we see this great lesson from Ezra, who, with all this gold, he didn't feel vulnerable. Maybe he did a little bit. But he was trusting in God, and he lived what he believed. Number three, you can find a closet of prayer wherever you are. And this week, as you, whenever you find yourself into a challenging situation, whether you're changing the tire in your car or whatever it might be, that there is a closet of communion with God, and you can send up a Nehemiah prayer from there. But the main lesson that I want to leave with you today is back to what I asked at the beginning, and that was, I wonder if God has placed each one of us in each of our situations for such a time as this. And from the story that we've looked, we see that at the beginning, God's work required someone who could provide finances and freedoms. And Cyrus found himself in such a situation for such a time. And then we had, after him, Ezra, God's work needed someone who could lead spiritual revival, who could, who could teach people about the Word of God. And Ezra found himself in such a situation for such a time as this. Then we see Nehemiah, cupbearer to the king, rubbing shoulders. He, and, and God's work needed a leader, someone who could step up, someone who could inspire the people, someone with charisma and confidence and faith in God. And Nehemiah found himself in such a place in such a place for such a time. And when we look through our story through a blazing grace, we see this theme coming up over and over and over again. Think of right back in Genesis, God needed someone who could build a boat. And Noah found himself in such a place at such a time to bring hope for the world that's going to last, that's going to be beyond him. And then we see um, Joseph. God, there was this famine over the, the land of Egypt. There was a famine that was threatening God's covenant family. And Joseph found himself in the palace in such a place for such a time. Think of Moses. He found himself in such a place for such a time. Daniel rubbing shoulders with all these kings. Such a place for such a time as this. And then all the people who had that mind to work. Not, there was not a single person that could have completed this job by themselves. But they needed to rally together. And every person with their specific gifts and their specific circumstances that God had given them, God needed for such a time as this. And remember Cyrus there. He's reading the Scriptures and he sees that before he was even born, that God had a plan for his life. And it reminds me of Jeremiah the prophet who said this in his talking about his calling. He said, God speaking to him, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Every one of us was known by God before the world had even thought of us. Every one of us is appointed for some task and some work to be done in God's plan. Uh, We might not be appointed to be a prophet but God has appointed you for something. Every one of us is in a situation that is unique and strategic. What is the workplace where you find yourself? God has a heart for that workplace. And God has placed you in that unique and strategic situation to, be a, to fulfill his, his work there. Who are your friends that you associate with? 
Sometimes people think, oh, maybe I'm a, bit, I'm a bit strange. I'm not very confident. I have a strange background. I'm not the usual church type. Whoever you are, I believe that there are people that you are more capable of reaching than anyone else because of your story, because of your circumstances, because of your background. I remember going um, out doing outreach in the community once, door knocking with this lady who was from a different country, didn't speak very good English. And I remember thinking, man, with her English, how is she ever going to like, do a good job in this, in this task that we're doing? We get back and she bumped into a, into, a, into a family of people from the same country that she was from and she hit it off with them. Now, I never would have connected with those people, but she found herself in a unique and strategic situation placed there by God for such a time as this. What are the talents that God has given you? Has God given you a love for Scripture? Has God given you um, the ability to connect with people, to make people feel comfortable, to make whatever it might be? God has given you those gifts for a specific purpose. And what are the resources that God has blessed you with? God has placed each one of us in each of our situations for such a time as this. And to finish with, I just want to leave with you with a simple little appeal. And that is, if, it is, if you would like to say yes to serving God in the unique and strategic situation that you find yourself in today, whether that be your workplace, whether that be your group of friends, whatever it might be, if you want to say yes to serving God in the unique and strategic situation that you find yourself in today, I invite you to raise your hand with me as we pray. Dear Father in heaven, we just thank you for these giants of Scripture who have taught us how to more uh, effectively serve you. And Lord, we believe that, and I believe, Lord, and and I believe the Scriptures teach us that each of us has been placed in such a specific situation, Lord, to fulfill a special work in your plan, Lord. Um, And as with Esther, um, as Mordecai said, if if she didn't feel that, do that role, Lord, you would have done it some other way. But Lord, we want to be a part of your work. We want the honor of joining together in, in what you are doing here in Kingscliff and in this community. And Father, I just pray that you'd give us the confidence to step out and live up to the calling that you have upon our lives. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.